Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, we highlight three Morningstar medalist funds struggling this year, Christine Benz shares takeaways from Portfolio Makeover Week and interviews one of her Portfolio Makeover subjects, Leo Atchison encourages investors to use HSAs as investment accounts, and Alex Bryan shows investors where they can find yield. So let's get started. We take a closer look at three good funds that are stuck in a dry spell. We assign high Morningstar analyst ratings to strategies that we think will outperform a relevant index or most peers over a market cycle. But that doesn't mean there won't be some dry spells along the way. Today, we're looking at three highly rated funds that are struggling this year. Oakmark Select is one of the worst performers in Morningstar's large blend category in 2020. Katie Reichart, who covers the fund, points out that because the fund concentrates in about 20 companies, investors must be comfortable with boom and bust returns, and this year's returns qualify as a bust. Although the portfolio has its share of winners this year, including Netflix and Facebook, its returns are being dragged down by horrible performance from its sizable stake in financials. Although we think Oakmark Select will see better days again, it requires a heavy dose of patience. Fidelity Advisor Growth and Incomes Returns also land near the bottom of the large blend category. The fund's overweight positions in energy, industrials, and financials have stung. Management embraces out-of-favor or fundamentally challenged companies and avoids firms that have been bid up by market mania. Robbie Greengold, who covers the fund for Morningstar, points out that management's discipline has rewarded patient investors over time. Lastly, one of our favorite funds in Morningstar's large growth category, PrimeCap Odyssey Growth, is struggling relative to its peers. The managers are benchmark agnostic, favoring companies that they think have above-average growth potential when those prospects are still emerging, largely overlooked, or clouded by controversy. As such, the fund lacks significant exposure to the mega-cap tech names driving so many other large growth funds. Alec Lucas, who covers the fund for Morningstar, says that the managers have a tolerance for volatility. Investors who own the fund need the same. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com slash Alexa. Now, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. touch on trends from this year's Portfolio Makeover Week. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. It's Portfolio Makeover Week. Here with me today to talk about some of the key takeaways from this year's batch of makeovers is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Thanks for being here. Susan, it's great to be here. Thank you. Now, you've been doing these makeovers for several years, and there's always that one cohort that's looking for a second opinion. Who are these people? They are people who are getting close to retirement. So we ask our users when they submit their portfolios for makeover, they submit their preliminary information. We ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves, their age and their portfolio value, what their main issues are. And we see a huge convergence in this area of people who are like between the ages of 60 and 70 and really wrestling with this idea of whether they have what it takes to retire. And certainly since we have had a strong market environment, more of those investors at, at that age, uh, in that general age band are looking closely at their portfolios and trying to determine whether they're viable. So we have a lot of people looking for that second opinion 
as retirement draws close. And the takeaway for me for that, Susan, is um, this is a complicated business. You know, I've always been such an evangelist that there are a lot of aspects of investment planning and financial planning that, that individuals can figure out on their own. The more I've focused on retirement planning, the more I've come to believe that most people should get another set of eyes on their plans before embarking on retirement. So if I didn't select your portfolio for a makeover, I would say get that second opinion by seeking out some financial help from a financial planner or advisor. Now, you made over five portfolios this year. And as you were you know, looking through them, are, were there any commonalities when it came to sort of the asset mix, asset allocation? There were. One of the biggies is that, as you might expect, since we have had this great recovery in stocks in 2020, and it's been part of a long-running rally in the equity market, many people had very high equity weightings. Um, and so that was one of the things I addressed in some of the makeovers, especially for people who are very close to retirement, because we want to limit their sequence of return risk. We don't want them to have their whole financial wherewithal at stake in the stock market, they need to have more in safe investments. Now, that's a tough sell today, largely because the yields on those safe investments are really, really low, where maybe you're not even breaking even once inflation is factored in. But I still think that um, most people, especially those who are getting close to retirement, should have an allocation to safe investments to protect them against potential equity market volatility. Another thing I saw, Susan, in addition to the just overall equity overweight, was an underweight in foreign stocks. And to me, that is something that investors of all ages should be taking a look at, especially because when we look at market forecasts from various firms, whether our internal researchers at Morningstar or external firms, most of them are calling for better returns from foreign stocks over the next decade than has been the case over the past decade. And that's largely because valuations appear to be more attractive overseas than in the US. So in addition to taking a look at baseline asset allocation, I also drill into sub asset allocation and found that many portfolios were quite lacking with respect to their foreign stock exposure. A common theme that seems to recur during the makeovers is that people are looking for ways to take out, remove some of the complexity that they have in their portfolios that have that has just happened over time. What are some rules of thumb or things that investors could be thinking about when it comes to, geez, how can I make things a little bit more simpler? <laughs> well, certainly all-in-one building blocks are a great idea. That's one of the reasons why my portfolio makeovers often feature index funds at the end of the day, because it's a way to obtain a lot of diversification without a lot of monkeying around with individual holdings. One other thing I typically do when I'm looking at a portfolio for someone who is close to or embarking on retirement is that I take some of the individual stocks out of the portfolio simply because even though some individual investors love their individual stocks, it just introduces complexity. It, it introduces more oversight obligations and um, just increases the number of moving parts in the portfolio. So one of the portfolios I featured this year was the portfolio of a very avid do-it-yourself investor who loved individual stock investing. 
So I took the individual equity portfolio down to just about 10% of the total portfolio. That was a little higher than my comfort level, but I wanted to try to find a happy medium where she could continue to be an engaged investor and, and engage in a hobby that she loves while also reducing some of that idiosyncratic risk from the portfolio. So those are a couple of things. And then another thing that I sometimes do with the portfolios is if we have a very small account, so say you have a spouse who has a small Roth IRA who hasn't been the main earner, so it's not a big account, might just use a target date fund there to provide all-in-one diversification and just kind of a hands-off um, complexion to that portion of the portfolio. So those are some of the things that I think about. Now, you comb through many submissions to, to get to the you know five candidates for the makeover. As you were going through those submissions, were there any trends that sort of jumped out at you? A couple of really positive ones, I would say, Susan. One is that I continue to see a greater embrace of index funds. I think investors have really gotten the message about the importance of low costs as part of their portfolio plans and as something they can control. So I see more and more index funds and portfolios, which I think is encouraging. And then I have to say, you know, in this pandemic time where our lives have been turned upside down in so many important ways, I just found it inspiring to read through these submissions and see people are long-term focused. They're, they're looking to the future, trying to make their futures better. And I found that um, theme woven through a number of my conversations with the individuals who submitted their portfolios. So that was just kind of a feel-good thing with this year's set of portfolio makeovers, just to see that even though these are really challenging times, people are focusing on the future and focusing on better days ahead. Well, Christine, thank you very much for your time today. And on a personal note, I'd really like to thank you for doing these portfolio makeovers. They are a lot of work. And <laughs> I, I just, I, I love seeing, you know, our readers and our users in these real life situations. But then from that, we can all learn something that we can apply to our own situations and portfolios. So really, thank you so much for doing these. Thank you, Susan. It's always a great learning experience for me and just also really fun for me to get to interact with investors in a one-on-one -on -one way, in a way that I can't necessarily do in my day job usually. So it's a, it's a fun exercise. Great. Thanks again, Christine. I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Christine Benz interviews Investment News senior columnist and portfolio makeover subject, Jeff Benjamin. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar.com. It's Portfolio Makeover Week, and I'm excited to be joined by the subjects of one of this year's portfolio makeovers, Jeff Benjamin. Jeff is a senior columnist at Investment News, and he's been kind enough and generous enough to show us his portfolio, discuss it with me, and let me write about it. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. This has uh, been an experience for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an experience for me too, and, and I'm really grateful that you're willing to do this. Let's talk about your motivation for being willing to put yourself out there. I know you want to write about this for Investment News. You plan to write about it. But what were mm -hmm. your goals when we sort of entered into this engagement? Well, I know that you do this annually with a bunch of different people. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I was anxious to find out where I am. 
So let's talk about some of the surprises for you. One thing that you and I talked about is um, I identified that you actually had a fairly sizable allocation to gold through a couple of exchange-traded funds. You noted that was kind of a surprise in your current portfolio. Any other surprises as we sort of went through the process in either the before portfolio or in the after portfolio? Well, as you know, we talked about, I wasn't surprised that I have kind of a, a mishmash of things in my current portfolio because I kind of pop things in there, motivated by various things and and leave them. I don't mess around with it a lot. Uh, I, I, I tend to save a lot and I tend to add a lot to those allocations that I have. And then if something is in there that might look a little strange to you, it's because I, you know, I was motivated by something for some reason. But um I know I had a lot of gold. I mean, 5%, I guess some people would consider it a lot, but it's been a pretty good run for gold. I mean, I know I have a lot of equity exposure for somebody my age, and um, I, I really want to stay that way. And, and I, I also, I feel good. I, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised that, uh, as you explained it to me, I'm not in that bad of shape right now. Not at all. And so let's talk about that. You mentioned that your portfolio had made really great strides over the past decade. What do you see as the key uh, things that you've done to help enlarge your portfolio? A couple of things. Uh, uh, Investing as much as I can, uh, as regularly as possible, which is basically every pay period, and um, staying invested. Just sitting, you know, even if all my investment allocations aren't perfect, I've ridden it through. Uh, I know people that uh, have tried to get in and out of the market over the past few years. It's been some volatile times, even earlier this year. Um, But what I do is I don't check my portfolio very often at all, sometimes less than twice a year. And, um, And that's how I plan to you know, be for the long haul. And that's, again, why my, as you detailed, my portfolio is not, is not perfect uh, because I don't go in there and tinker with it a lot. I just kind of, I leave it. I, I, I just try and invest as much as I can and ignore it, especially during down market cycles. Jeff, you indicated to me that you're maybe within eight years of your expected retirement date. Do you think volatility will feel different to you if you are that much closer to retirement than it did when you were a little bit younger? Well, it's it's kind of difficult to know how I'm going to feel exactly, but I do I, I can understand that getting to a point where I don't have an income or steady or an income or a job, I guess. Um, I'm sure I'll be more anxious about the volatility in the markets, but I'd like to think that I'm going to stay as committed to my, I guess, relatively aggressive strategy as as I am now. I mean, 70% equities, basically. The idea is that once I retire, I'm, I'm hopefully going to live for a while afterwards. So I'll, uh, I'll still need to be in the markets. Um, so yeah, short answer is I, I, at this point, my plan is to stay just as I am and to not dwell on the ups and downs in the markets and and not check it, especially when the markets are down. And you indicated to me that one of your concerns is what is the alternative to maintaining an equity heavy portfolio? You're just not uh, seeing great return potential from bonds and cash. Exactly. Uh, Fixed income is giving you nothing right now. Cash is, is 
is is less than nothing if you factor in inflation. So, uh, I mean, what is the alternative? You you have to be in the equity markets uh, unless you just want to continue to to kind of pick apart your your savings. When you think about other sort of looming to dos in your financial plan, things that you and I talked about, what are some of the key key things that you plan to kind of jump on? Uh, I need to get a will written. Um, I, uh, I, I don't know why I put it off so long, but, uh, just as a, as an FYI, I have an appointment at, in about three hours from right now to talk, uh, in a conference call with, uh, my wife and I, and, uh, an estate attorney to get a will written. Uh, so that's going to be done shortly, hopefully. And, uh, long-term care insurance. I, you know, I never really thought about it and, and I know I, I guess I should because the, the one thing I think my wife and I do not want to leave our son is a uh, as a financial burden. So uh, we might not be leaving him with millions and millions of dollars, but uh, I don't want him to have to have the financial strain of taking care of me or my wife. Well, Jeff, I'm so grateful that you're willing to do this for us. I have really enjoyed working with you, and I know that our viewers and users will really appreciate getting sort of the personal view. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. It's been great. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Now, Leo Atchison from Morningstar Research Services discusses how investors should use their HSAs. Hi, I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar recently updated its annual rankings of the largest health savings accounts. Here with me today to discuss why investors should think about using HSAs as investment accounts is Leo Atchison. Leo is a director in Morningstar's Manager Research Group and an author of our latest research. Hi, Leo. Thanks for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Let's take a step back and briefly start with talking about what HSAs are and who has access to one. Sure. So HSAs are tax advantage vehicles to save for qualified medical expenses. Um, they're really only available to people that are in high deductible health plans. So not those that are in low deductible health plans, but if you're in a high deductible plan, it's the most efficient way that you can save for your medical costs. Now, we often hear that HSAs have these unrivaled tax advantages. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Absolutely. Um, so some refer to it as a triple tax advantage. It's actually a quadruple tax advantage in a sense. So money goes in tax-free, money grows tax-free, and then you can withdraw it tax-free as long as it's spent on qualified medical expenses. But in addition to all of that, you skip out on payroll taxes. So uh, these vehicles are different from 401ks, IRAs, 529s. All of those tax money either on the way in or on the way out, and they also do not uh, skip out on payroll taxes. So HSAs have this really a quadruple tax advantage of, of goes in free, grows free, withdraws free, and skips out on payroll taxes. Wow. So now HSAs can be used a couple of different ways. One is sort of that spend as you go approach. You put your money in your HSA and then you use that money over the course of you know, the coming year to cover your medical expenses. But another way to use an HSA is to use it as an investment vehicle. And you know, you've done some research into this. How, how do you see that that breaks down people that use it to spend versus people that use it as an investment vehicle? 
So the vast majority of people are using it to spend to cover their current medical costs. From our research that we, we have found that roughly about five or 6% of individuals actually are investing their assets and growing them, which is really the way that you maximize the tax benefits that are, are available in HSAs. Uh, you've seen that tick up uh, you know, a few years ago. A few years ago, it was more like two or 3% of account holders were investing and now it's up to five, 6%. Um, so, you know, as you continue to see that grow, then people would obviously benefit from more of the tax advantages that HSAs offer. And is that the primary reason, Leo, that people should be considering using HSAs as investment vehicles for that tax benefit? Well, they're useful for both. I mean, it's, it's, a lot of it's a lot of people don't have the means, right, to to use their HSA and invest that money. They they actually need to use it to cover their current medical costs, and it's still a great vehicle for that because you aren't paying taxes, you you aren't you aren't paying your uh, your income taxes uh, or your payroll taxes. So uh, you know it, it's an immediate savings if you need to use it to cover current medical costs. But if you happen to have the financial means where you can actually take your HSA contributions and invest it and then, you know, pay for your medical costs out of pocket so that, you know, your HSA investments are able to grow tax-free, which is really, uh, you know, really makes the tax benefits exponentially better, then, then yes, that, that is, uh, you, you know, more optimal. Um, so they're great for both, but they are better meaningfully for investing. And at the end of the the time, you still need to be using those for um, medical expenses. Correct. Yes. So they do need to be used on qualified medical expenses. Uh, Fidelity has come out with a lot of estimates for how much couples will spend on healthcare in retirement. Uh, I think the most recent estimate was around two hundred and eighty thousand dollars in retirement total between a couple. Uh, so. You know that's that's a significant amount, obviously, and uh, that also doesn't include um, uh, long-term care, so which HSAs are also eligible to pay for. So it would be even more than that. Um, so so yes, they would have to be spent on qualified medical expenses. Uh, how, however, if you happen to be, you know, very fortunate and healthy in your retirement, then you need and you want to spend the money on something else then worst case, it's treated like a 401k, where your money, after the age of 65, if you withdraw it, then it's taxed on the way out. So, you know, best case, you're able to take full advantage of the, of the tax benefits of HSAs. Um, you know, worst case, you, it's treated like a 401k. And let's talk a little bit broadly about, you know, the, the HSA industry. So let's say more people did begin to use their HSA as an investment vehicle versus the spend-as-you-go approach. You know, what would that mean for the complexion of the industry? You know, what could that mean for fees and, and what we pay for HSAs? Right. So it's, it's very interesting. As I mentioned before, about 6% of account holders are using their HSAs as investment vehicles. However, that 6% makes up over 25%, I think it was around 27% or so of total HSA assets. Mm -hmm. So just think how much the HSA industry could grow if more and more people were investing it. Um, and, and if you saw more and more people investing, 
you would see asset bases grow, which should lead to economies of scale. And I would expect fee reductions. And that's every investor likes a fee reduction. So that would be great news. <laughs> of course, of course. Leo, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. And lastly this week, Alex Bryan from Morningstar Research Services joins in the hunt for yield. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Many investors are perennially on the hunt for yield, but that search has gotten harder in recent months. Joining me to discuss what income seekers should bear in mind and to share a few favorite income-producing funds is Alex Bryan. He's Morningstar's Director of Passive Strategies Research for North America. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Alex, let's talk about some of the factors that have driven down yields really across the board in recent months. Well, interest rates are near historic lows, and that depresses the yields and expected returns of nearly all investments. So there really is no escaping low uh, interest rates. No matter where you look, expected returns and yields are really being depressed. Alex, many investors, as you know, are attracted to generating income from their investments. Can you share any tips that they should bear in mind if they are on the hunt for income in what is quite a yield-constrained world today? So ideally, the fund should have some risk controls in place. Um, and this can be achieved either with funds that are screening for both yield as well as some measure of quality, or uh, for f through funds that are using a broadly diversified portfolio where a few bad apples aren't necessarily going to derail your investment performance. But it's important to really keep an eye on risk because uh, that can creep into your portfolio when you're hunting for yield. You and the team focus on passive strategies, ETFs, and index funds. So you brought a few funds that you like, that you think do do a good job of generating income and also managing risk. Let's start with a bond fund that you and the team like. One you like is iShares Broad USD Investment Grade Corporate Bond. The ticker is USIG. Talk about what you think its attractive attributes are. With bonds, I think you really can keep it simple and stick to broadly diversified investment grade corporate bond funds uh, like the iShares Broad USD investment grade corporate bond fund that you mentioned. Um, investment grade corporate bonds tend to offer higher yields than treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities, which really account for the bulk of the U.S. investment grade market. But they still have fairly low credit risk and effectively diversify stock risk. Uh, so this particular fund is offering very broad exposure to uh, investment-grade corporate U.S. bonds. Uh, so it basically owns pretty much all corporate bond issuers out there with at least one year to maturity and then weights them based on market value. Um, so there, aren't, there isn't a lot of exposure to issuer-specific risk. You get a very broadly diversified portfolio. And that simple screen for investment-grade bonds goes a long way to keeping risk in check because these bonds, while they um, have more credit risk than treasuries, for example, um, they still have very strong balance sheets and are very likely to be able to repay their debt. So I think it's, it's just keeping it really simple. Focusing on investment-grade bonds is a great way of keeping risk in check with respect to your fixed income investments. So would this be a fund that someone would use as a standalone fixed income fund, or would they want to augment it with a fund that encompasses government bonds and other sectors that are left out here? I think this is a, 
best used as a, as a satellite or a supplemental holding to uh, a core bond fund that includes treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities. But if you're looking to boost your yield a little bit, I think it's a good strategy to overweight corporate bonds because corporate bonds, if you're just sticking to a, a broad Bloomberg Barclays aggregate bond tracker, uh, corporate bonds only represent a small fraction of that portfolio. So if you overweight corporate bonds by pairing um, one of those aggregate bond trackers with a corporate bond fund like this, I think that's a good way to boost your yield without taking an excessive amount of risk. Okay. Now let's look at equities. Uh, one fund that you and the team like is Vanguard High Dividend Yield Index, the ticker's VYM. Talk about why you like that one. So this fund offers very broadly diversified exposure to high dividend yielding stocks. So it basically targets stocks of all sizes, U.S. stocks of all sizes, um, that represent the higher yielding half of all U.S. dividend payers. And then it weights them based on market capitalization. So the way that this fund keeps risk in check is through broad diversification and through market cap weighting. So it will still own a few bad apples, uh, some stocks that may not be able to sustain their high dividend payments. But those tend to represent a very small part of the portfolio because if a stock, in fact, does have deteriorating fundamentals, the market capitalizations tend to, to be small to begin with, and they often become smaller as those stocks disappoint. Um, as market capitalization of weaker companies shrinks, they become a smaller part of the portfolio. Um, so this fund is really doing a good job of delivering a higher dividend yield than the market while still um, not putting all of its eggs in any one basket or any one sector. So I think it does a really good job of effectively diversifying risk. It's been one of the harder dividend income funds to beat. Um, it's one of the cheapest funds in, in that group. So I think those characteristics really make this particular fund very attractive. And it's certainly one of our favorites uh, when it comes to, to generating income with your equity portfolio. And how about the portfolio context here, Alex? Is this something that would be a worthy standalone holding or should investors also augment it with a more sort of total market exposure fund? So I think this one could serve as a standalone holding because if you look at the risk of this portfolio, it actually tends to be a bit more defensive than a total stock market fund. Uh, so it tends to hold up better than the market during downturns. And you do give up a little bit of upside during market rallies, but I think this is a really great option for investors who are looking to boost yield uh, because you also get the benefit of lower risk than the market. So uh, this is a really good option as a, a core standalone equity holding. It doesn't have a lot of exposure to individual stocks or individual sectors. So I think it, it's sufficiently well diversified that it could serve as a core portfolio building block. Okay, Alex, it's always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice.
Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.